Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come, come in, come in and <laughs> save the heat. That and know that you are safe and welcome here. This is The Nook. This is Tales to Terrify. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and tonight... Tonight is almost Halloween. Come, unwrap, unmuffle, demitten yourselves, rub your hands, pour a mulled cider, dip some pumpkin stew, and do settle with a chum tonight. Yes, it is... Almost, but not quite. And when next we meet, All Hallows' Eve will be over for the season. The day after a holiday is such a sad time, isn't it? If you truly enjoy whatever the holiday is, on that day after you are as far from it in a temporal way as you'll ever be. So, don't you hate it when a correlative event such as our weekly gather here for Tales to Terrify, doesn't quite mesh, just misses Halloween. And by the way, are you still one of us who yearly has to look up the pronunciation of S-A-M-H-A-I-N as we mark the onset of the darker half of the year? Is it Samhain, Sawin, Soween, or Sawween? Well, lend me your ears, children. I am informed by the always reliable Internet machine that all four pronunciations are utterly wrong, and which errors gives the willies to many Wiccans when they hear people, such as myself, trying to sound out the day's name. 
Oh, note to self. Talk to Marty Munt about getting him to record his story, The Willies, for us. You'll love it. According to those who have studied the matter, or who just know such things, the barely pronounceable S-A-M-H-A-I-N should be pronounced Shavna, if you're a male, or Havna, if you're a female. However, as I understand it, nowadays most Gaelic-speaking folk, men or women, simply pronounce it Shavna. Some Wiccans blame Gerald Gardner for the Sam Hain so when or so ween confusion, claiming that Gardner, the man who more than anyone else was responsible for bringing Wiccan practices into the modern world, actually mispronounced the name of the day, and his followers were afraid to correct him. So, All Hallows' Eve has remained Soen, or Samhain, or, well, Gardner was from Lancashire anyway. The point is, at our next meeting here in the Nook, we'll be looking at the back end of the day, but we shall be in the year's dark half, oh, oh joy, and rapture so foreseen. Before we breach tonight's entertainments, and they are wondrous fair, a reminder. Stop by our webpage, TalesToTerrify.com, and drop a few dollars into the jar, hmm? so we can maintain ourselves here in the ether. And another reminder. Writer extraordinaire Yuji Foster could use our help. If you've missed the last few meetings, Miss Foster has a large B-cell lymphoma in the sinus, while she's got insurance where cancer is, finances are drained. So, stop by the Tales to Terrify Facebook page and click on any of the three UG Foster-specific links and send a few dollars, pounds, euros, shekels, et al. her way via PayPal, if you'd like, or just go and buy her books on Kindle. She is a wondrous writer. And by the way, if you must decide between gifting us or helping U.G. Foster, choose U.G. Foster. Okay, jumping into the evening, we've got Sylvia Schultz's promised Halloween edition of her Lights Out series. I know I tell you this every week, but for this one, I recommend you go find a chum and snuggle in the dark. This is a chiller. Here is Sylvia with The House That Wasn't There. Hello, this is Sylvia Schultz, your host. In honor of Halloween, I have an absolutely wonderful show for you this time. So let's just jump into it and go lights out. The very best part of doing what I do is that I get to meet loads of interesting people. I found myself at the Pollock Hospital one May evening with a bunch of folks who were there for a tour. One of those ghost hunters was George Mueller, a professor at Heartland Community College who was there with his wife. We all got to chatting about ghosts, as I do so love to do, and we wandered quite a ways from the Peoria State Hospital. 
I've been fascinated with spooky tales ever since I was a kid, and stories like the one George shared with me are the reason why. If I had heard a story like this when I was eight years old, I'd have just lost my mind. I listened, spellbound, as George spun his tale. Unfortunately, three-quarters of the way through it, I realized that my digital recorder wasn't turned on. George was gracious enough to give me his contact information, and later I got a hold of him on the phone. Lucky, lucky me, George shared with me the story of the house that isn't there. And lucky, lucky both of us, now I get to share it with you. The house that isn't there is an old story um, that dates back to at least the 1940s. Um, I'm not sure how much further back than that. My parents have heard of it, and my grandparents talked about it, too. Wow. Um, and it was very well known amongst high schoolers in, uh, in the area I'm from. Okay. Um, and and the house is near Illinois City. Um, I prefer not to give the exact location. Okay. Uh, because it is private property. So uh, if, if you wanted it, that'd be one thing. But for a broadcast, I'd rather not give it out. Okay, that's fine. Okay. Um, but what is important about the house is that to get to the house that isn't there, um, you leave the small town of Illinois City, mm-hmm. you travel several miles into the countryside. Okay. Um, down, down narrow, twisting gravel roads. And um, it becomes more and more rural as you're driving away from the already very small town of Illinois City. Mm-hmm. And you're on a very narrow gravel road, and eventually you come to a valley. There's a stream at the bottom, and it's the valley's probably a quarter mile across. And uh, you travel across the valley, and on the upper slope, um, on the far side from Illinois City, there's a spot on the side of the road where there's the remnants of an old farmstead mm-hmm. with the typical Illinois windbreak of trees. Um, around what would have been a house yard. Okay. And there's a spot to pull off the road, and it's been gated in, fenced in, in modern times, um, where the driveway to the house would have been. And to see the house that isn't there, you go on any night and pull up, and you have to leave your car and, and walk 50 feet or so away from the road to where there's a break in the trees and a fence and a gate in the fence. And then you look up um, and up a slight hill. Okay. And it's maybe 100 feet from the from the gate. Um, there's a spot where there are trees, and there's not a house there now, but the trees form, well, kind of the outline of the house. And if you go during the day, it's just a very vague suggestion of the house. Okay. But if you go at night and wait for a while, um, the house outline becomes much stronger. All right. 
and this is something that we did um, not once or twice. We did it dozens of times over three years. Wow. So you go, and most nights, um, the house would just get stronger, and then you'd see the outline of a house, and, and that was it. Okay. Some nights, the outline of the house would get stronger, and then you'd see the outline of a window. Now, this was a, a stand of trees, so there's not a hole through them that light could have come through, but there would be a window that was lit as if there was a shade and then light leaking around it. Oh, wow. And then if you waited longer, you'd see the outline of the door. And often we would, that happens fairly frequently. Okay. So a few times um, we stayed and there would be the outline of the window and then the shape would go up. <laughs> and, and you'd see dark forms moving inside the house. Mm. Uh, and typically, people's nerve would fail at that point. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so, um, and, and it was kind of a standard that you would go and see the house that isn't there, and then you would take other people and give them a scare. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, one of the other standards of the house is that cars would have trouble starting. So if you stayed until there was the window and figures moving, um, frequently you'd have to throw the car into neutral and roll away from the house and then it would start. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and we did that, I don't know, probably, we probably took people up there a dozen times and had that happen. Oh, man. So this was a repeatable thing. It was. Oh, um, man. And I'll get to, it stopped eventually, and I'll, I'll explain kind of why. Okay. Why I think it stopped. Uh, for me. Okay. I, I know kids still go there today. Wow. Um, we, we did this over and over again. It was uh, uh, four friends of mine and I who would go up and see this. And, you know, we, over time, it got to be kind of old old hats so uh, when we saw the people moving the house uh, one night we didn't leave <laughs> so we're there and uh, um, it was kind of standard that we I would watch in one direction and another person would watch in another and, and we kind of keep our eyes out because there was always the fear that uh, the local that the farmer who actually owned that land would chase people off. Oh, okay. It's hanging around. And behind you, when you were looking at the house, there was a huge open field that went on for several miles. Okay. And uh, it just always made me a little paranoid. Mm-hmm. So uh, one night we went there, and, and we're watching... And the house, the lights came on, and people were moving back and forth, and then the door opened. <laughs> now, I didn't actually get to see it open. So it was my other friends who did, because I was watching behind. Okay. The, the thing that startled me was there was something in the other field. Um, a large, dark shape. Okay. Um, so we ran, and we had a... 
we had a very systematic plan for getting into the truck who got in first and who went where. So well, that's I smart. <laughs> and I jumped in and, and we all got in. And I looked in my rearview mirror and I saw dark red eyes, something moving low to the ground, not a coyote. It looks more like a person, except all in darkness, um, slinking on the ground. Okay. So we left. Yeah. And that that held us for a couple of days. Or, <laughs> well, for a couple of weeks. Uh-huh. And, of course, being high school boys, we decided we had to go back and see more. <laughs> so we went back, and... This night just happened to be pretty close to a full moon. Not not quite a true full moon, but very close. Gotcha. And we were watching. And one of the other phenomenon that was really um, is really famous about the house that isn't there is that you'll go and uh, there are blue fireflies. Mm. Um. And if you look behind you in that vast field, there's typical yellow ones. In this field, there's blue, hmm. very big blue fireflies, okay. and only a few of them. And when things start happening at the house, there are no other insects around. All the fireflies disappear from the field behind you. Oh, wow. Which is pretty striking. Well, um... And the fireflies from the house would always lead a path leading up to the house. Now, oh. one day we did go up during the day and look around the site, and there is the ruins of a house there. There's actually a foundation. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing that was disturbing, and is also part of the legend, is that there's an open well. Mm. And from what we could tell where the fireflies was leading, would lead you, if you followed them, was right to that open well. Oh, no. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was that was a little disturbing. That is disturbing. Well, anyway, on, on the night in question, we went back, and uh, it was a really nice clear night, good strong moonlight, and we're watching the house, and there's the blue fireflies, and the other bugs disappear, and there's no no sound of crickets around or anything like that. <laughs> Creepy. So, uh, very picturesque. Mm. We're watching the house, and it's appearing, and then we started to notice that there was a dark form um, coming over the crest of the hill next to the house. And it would appear in the distance and then uh, a little bit closer. And it wasn't like it walked closer. It just was, say, 150 feet away, and then it was 140 feet away, mm-hmm. and then it was 130 feet away, and it was back at 150. Oh, wow. It was a really strange, um, really strange phenomenon, like it was flickering between two spots. Hmm. Um, so we're watching this, and wow, that was really interesting. And first there's one, and then there were eventually three. Ooh, three different distinct shapes. Three distinct shapes at the top of this hill. Okay. And it's just beyond and to the right of the house. And the lights in the house were very strong, and that night was very clear. Hmm. And 
we're watching, and, and okay, that's very interesting. And then suddenly they start to get closer rapidly. So it went from 150 to 140 to 130, and then to 120, which was closer than it had been before. And then 100, and then 50. Yeah. The three forms were coming at us. At the same time, we heard something on both sides uh, crashing through the trees. And okay, so we left very quickly. Um, and this time we, we had decided beforehand we were going to stay and see all there was to see. Mm. But things that we didn't see crashing through the trees did, did throw a scare into us. Yeah, no kidding. Well, we went back. Oh, man. So we had retreated and then we came back. Good for um, you. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those nights. Um, <laughs> So we came back, and, and the house appeared again very quickly, and that was really unusual. Usually you had to go and stand out and watch the house for a while, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour or Ooh. more, before your eyes really adjusted and you really saw it. Okay. This time we got out of the truck, and it was less than five minutes, and oh. there it is, and there's the shapes again. And we're really watching, and uh, that's... That's interesting, and the house is really defined, and we saw people moving around inside the house, inside the window, um, and started to hear a, a burble of voices. Okay. And, and that was something that had never happened before. And then we saw the shape appearing, and my job in this, this particular time was to watch the field behind us. Okay. Because I'd seen that dark form that I think came out of that field once before, and I was kind of nervous about that. Mm -hmm. So, um, the form started to move, and it came down at us again. We heard sounds coming through the trees, but the thing that disturbed me was that something came from the other side of the truck. <laughs> ran, oh, yeah. So we ran and jumped in the truck and, and drove off. Um, and we got to the end of the road, and went to a general store and, and had a uh, soft drink. Mm -hmm. And looked at the side of my truck, and there was a rub mark in the dust where something had, had brushed up against it. Oh, something roughly man size. Yeah. Um, and this really got us curious. So we went back one final time. Okay. Um, this is the same night? Same night. Okay. And by now, um, we'd started off at about 11, mm -hmm. and it was about 1 in the morning when we went back the third time. Okay. Roughly. Right. So we pulled up, and I had my truck pointed so it would be heading downhill. Okay. Um, and we're watching again. And the house appears really fast. There's the dark form. And we're really watching. Um, we tried a camera another time, and it didn't work. Mm. So we didn't have a camera. But we we really wanted to see what would happen if the door opened. Yeah. And we got our wish. <laughs> we were there probably 15 or 20 minutes. And 
the house was really informed. The dark shape uh, didn't appear, but the door to the house opened. Oh. And people came out. And it was really, uh, it wasn't exactly misty, but it was difficult to see exactly what was happening. But it, it really looked like uh, very large men in white shirts. Hmm. Um, and this is the thing that was really distinctive and, and truly gave it that touch of the bizarre that made it really um, far out. Okay. Is that after a minute, their hands were glowing. I can only describe it as being like their hands were on fire. Uh, oh. um, and there were one or two of them came out of the house, but then there were others who were just kind of in the yard. And there was something hanging from the tree that was kind of next to the house. Mm-hmm. There was a, a very distinctive old hanging style tree with the branch that stuck out to the left. Yeah. There was someone hanging. Uh, okay. <laughs> so men in white shirts with hands of fire came out of the house and they're mumbling or chanting or talking something just on the edge of hearing. Mm-hmm. No comprehensible words, but talking. Okay. And then the dark form appeared again. And this time, the three dark forms came together into one very tall, and I, I mean like 10 foot tall Ooh. dark form that came rushing down. Men in white shirts came down towards us. And we heard things crashing through the trees. Something was in the field on the other side, in front of the truck and behind. Um, so we run and jump in the truck, and headlights started coming down the road. Okay. Um, and I had a, an old pickup truck, but it had two um, semi-truck um, batteries in it because it was used to pull a trailer. So it had... A very robust electrical system. Okay. Much, um, I think it was six times as much amperage as was usual for that truck. Mm. So my truck always started. Mm-hmm. I could, for example, leave my headlights on for an entire day and a night, and they'd start the next day. No wow, problem. that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, so... I was the only person who never had trouble getting their vehicle to start. Yeah. Um, this this time I turned the key and the battery went all the way to dead. Oh, no. So there's things coming at us and we actually heard them rub against the truck. And the guy who was on the passenger seat on the far side yelled, oh my God, they're here, they're here, they're here. And I threw it into neutral and we kind of rolled down. And then once we were... 30 or 40 feet away from the entrance to the house, suddenly my truck started. Uh-huh. Um, but there's a car coming behind us, so I, I threw it into gear and we left. Yeah. And this time, you know, hearing things actually hit the truck was enough to really put a scare into us and into me in particular. So we took off and we were doing, you know, 70 or 80 <laughs> on this back road. Yeah. Well, there was a car behind us, and, and this is a very windy road with lots of hills and several valleys. Mm. Um, every time I looked in my rearview mirror, I saw the headlights for this car, mm. even at times I shouldn't have. 
Oh, like it when it, when it should have been hidden by a hill or a or a turn in the road. Exactly. Oh man. The other thing is, you know, this is we were teenage boys, so we knew, you know, usually could identify a car by its headlights. Oh sure, yeah. It was kind of a game we played. Mm-hmm. These were old timeies, uh, round. Uh, kind of closer together than a modern car. Definitely not a modern truck. Yeah, I can picture that as, as you're saying that. Um, and so we went. I, I went as fast as I possibly could. Uh, got to Illinois City and turned. And there's a long stretch of blacktop. And I, I went absolutely as fast as I could. Mm-hmm. So we're screaming down this road. And those lights, as soon as I turned onto the hard road the lights, it's not like they came up the gravel road and turned behind me. They were the same distance behind me. <laughs> oh, jeez. So, we, I drove as fast as I possibly could, and they're still the same distance behind me. So then I slowed down to see if it would catch up. And yeah. it didn't. Until I got close to a turn on the road. Yeah. Um, and then they started to close. Um, and that made me a little nervous mm-hmm. understandably so I made a couple of turns and it just happened that my parents church was uh, very close by mm-hmm. um, and it's also on a, a bumpy gravel road out in the country that's very hilly so we went pulled into the churchyard and jumped out if something was coming to get us, we were going to see what it was. And by God, we'd be on holy ground when it happened. There you go. So we jump out and we saw the headlights from the car uh, crest a hill and then go down. And then a split second later, the taillights head out the other way. Um, and, and I mean, this was instant. Um, we used to. As you can tell, we were car guys. We used to uh, practice bootlegger turns. Mm-hmm. That's where you spin a car around on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, this was faster than you could do that. Oh man! It was like it hit the bottom of the of the hill, and its headlights turned into taillights, and it drove the opposite direction at the same speed. Wow! Um, and it drove off, and uh, but we watched it drive all the way back uh, from that church you could actually see not the exactly where the house that isn't there is but you could see in that direction Okay. Uh, it was perfectly clear night lightning was striking <gasps> in that area <laughs> and we watched that car it turned around and it headed back and completed the square and went back at least in that direction of the house uh huh um, and we didn't go back for, I don't know, until after I was out of college, so <laughs> seven years later. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and, and when we did, nothing ever happened again, other than we saw the form of the house, and there would be that moment when we were there, and we tried it several times. There would be the moment when we were there when all the insects would stop making a sound and all the yellow fireflies would disappear and we'd only see the blue ones. Uh-huh. 
Um, and we did that a couple of times and then, you know, became adults and stopped. Oh. <laughs> now, the other strange thing about the, uh, the men with white shirts and hands of fire, mm-hmm. it, I had never heard this story about them. I, that had never been part of the stories. We've been warned about the open well. Mm-hmm. Um, we were we were talking to some, and this was later, probably a year after that happened. We were talking to some older guys from the area, some, some people who were three or four years older than us. Um who we didn't know had gone there. Mm. And they said, oh, did you see the guys with white shirts and hands of fire? (laughs) And we said, yeah. And they said, yeah, we didn't stick around when that happened, (laughs) but the car wouldn't start. (laughs) Um, And... That that was we were talking to these. So we just happened to be talking to these guys in a diner, okay, in the area, and an older guy, someone I've never met, turned around and said, "Yeah, you shouldn't go there. That's where that boy fell in the well. That's where those guys with the white shirts and hands of fire. Yeah, I've seen them. You should never go back." Oh, no. Wow. So uh, apparently the other people had seen the men with white shirts and hands of fire. Yeah. Wow. What a tale. Oh, man. (laughs) I do hope you've enjoyed this special Halloween presentation of Lights Out. For more spooky tales, please be sure to visit darkcontinents.com, where you'll find collections of ghost stories from many fine authors. Some of our story collections include Strange Tales and Southern Fried Ghosts and Their Midwest Cousins by David Youngquist, Ghosts Can Bleed by Tracy McBride, Quiet Houses by Simon Kurt Unsworth, Campfire Chillers by Dave Jeffrey, Monsters, Inc. by Scott Nicholson, and my own collections of unsettling tales, The Dark at the Heart of the Diamond, and Fractured Spirits, Hauntings at the Peoria State Hospital. Light your jack-o'-lanterns, share your candy, and be sure not to scream when we go Lights Out. Thank you, Sylvia. You know, as I was listening, I couldn't help but think of a couple of my favorite classic ghost tales. M.R. James' The Mezzotint, for example. Also of its companion story, The Haunted Doll's House. Two ghost pieces in which the past, the happenings, and the sins therefrom are manifested through, well, through figures in an artist's print and the dolls in a doll's house, respectively. Ah, well, I am already lamenting the fact that those two resonant phrases from tonight's segment, the house that wasn't there, and 
white shirts and hands of fire are spoken for. Ah, well. Thanks again, Sylvia, and thanks to you, Professor Mueller. After that, I want to jump right into the evening's fiction. I want you to hear it while the chills linger from the house that wasn't there. So, without further talk, here is Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper. It is very seldom that mere ordinary people like John and myself secure ancestral halls for the summer. A colonial mansion, a hereditary estate, I would say a haunted house, and reach the height of romantic felicity. But that would be asking too much of fate. Still, I will proudly declare that there is something queer about it. Else, why should it be let so cheaply? And why have stood so long untenanted? John laughs at me, of course, but one expects that in marriage. John is practical in the extreme. He has no patience with faith, an intense horror of superstition, and he scoffs openly at any talk of things not to be felt and seen, and put down in figures. John is a physician, and perhaps, I would not say it to a living soul, of course, but this is dead paper and a great relief to my mind. Perhaps that is one reason I do not get well faster. You see, he does not believe I am sick. And what can one do? If a physician of high standing, and one's own husband, assures friends and relatives that there is really nothing the matter with one but temporary nervous depression, a slight hysterical tendency, what is one to do? My brother is also a physician, and also of high standing. And he says the same thing. So I take phosphates or phosphites, whichever it is, then tonics and journeys and air and exercise, and am absolutely forbidden to work until I am well again. Personally, I disagree with their ideas. Personally, I believe that congenial work with excitement and change would do me good. But what is one to do? I did write for a while in spite of them. But it does exhaust me a good deal, having to be so sly about it, or else meet with heavy opposition. I sometimes fancy that if I had less opposition and more society and stimulus, but John says the very worst thing I can do is to think about my condition, and I confess it always makes me feel bad. So I will let it alone and talk about the house. The most beautiful place. It is quite alone standing well back from the road, quite three miles from the village. It makes me think of English places that you read about, for there are hedges and walls and gates that lock, and lots of separate little houses for the gardeners and people. There is a delicious garden. I never saw such a garden, large and shady, full of box-bordered paths and lined with long grape-covered arbors with seats under them. There were greenhouses, too, but they are all broken now. There was some legal trouble, I believe, something about the heirs and co-heirs. Anyhow, the place has been empty for years. That spoils my ghostliness, I am afraid, but I don't care. There is something strange about the house. I can feel it. 
I even said so to John one moonlight evening, but he said what I felt was a draft and shut the window. I get unreasonably angry with John sometimes. I'm sure I never used to be so sensitive. I think it is due to this nervous condition. But John says if I feel so, I shall neglect proper self-control. So I take pains to control myself, before him at least, and that makes me very tired. I don't like our room a bit. I wanted one downstairs that opened on the piazza and had roses all over the window and such pretty old-fashioned chintz hangings, but John would not hear of it. He said there was only one window and not room for two beds, and no near room for him if he took another. He is very careful and loving and hardly lets me stir without special direction. I have a schedule prescription for each hour in the day. He takes all care from me, and so I feel basely ungrateful not to value it more. He said we came here solely on my account, that I was to have perfect rest and all the air I could get. Your exercise depends on your strength, my dear, said he, and your food somewhat on your appetite. But air you can absorb all the time. So we took the nursery at the top of the house. It is a big, airy room, the whole floor nearly, with windows that look all ways, and air and sunshine galore. It was nursery first and then playroom and gymnasium, I should judge, for the windows are barred for little children, and there are rings and things in the walls. The paint and paper look as if a boys' school had used it. It is stripped off, the paper, in great patches all around the head of my bed, about as far as I can reach and in a great place on the other side of the room low down. I never saw a worse paper in my life, one of those sprawling flamboyant patterns committing every artistic sin. It is dull enough to confuse the eye in following, pronounced enough to constantly irritate and provoke study, and when you follow the lame, uncertain curves for a little distance, they suddenly commit suicide, plunge off at outrageous angles destroy themselves in unheard-of contradictions. The color is repellent, almost revolting, a smoldering, unclean yellow, strangely faded by the slow-turning sunlight. It is a dull yet lurid orange in some places, a sickly sulfur tint in others. No wonder the children hated it. I should hate it myself if I had to live in this room long. There comes John, and I must put this away. He hates to have me write a word. We have been here two weeks, and I haven't felt like writing before since that first day. I am sitting... A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Looking by the window now, up in this atrocious nursery, and there is nothing to hinder my writing as much as I please save lack of strength. John is away all day, and even some nights when his cases are serious. I am glad my case is not serious, but these nervous troubles are dreadfully depressing. John does not know how much I really suffer. He knows there is no reason to suffer, and that satisfies him. Of course, it is only nervousness. It does weigh on me so not to do my duty in any way. I meant to be such a help to John, such a real rest and comfort, and here I am a comparative burden already. Nobody would believe what an effort it is to do what little I am able, to dress and entertain, and other things. It is fortunate Mary is so good with the baby, such a dear baby, and yet I cannot be with him. It makes me so nervous. I suppose John never was nervous in his life. He laughs at me so about this wallpaper. At first he meant to repaper the room, but afterwards he said that I was letting it get the better of me, and that nothing was worse for a nervous patient than to give way to such fancies. He said that after the wallpaper was changed it would be the heavy bedstead, and then the barred windows, and then that gate at the head of the stairs, and so on. You know the place is doing you good, he said. And really, dear, I don't care to renovate the house just for a three-month rental. Then do let us go downstairs, I said. There are such pretty rooms there. Then he took me in his arms and called me a blessed little goose, and said he would go down to the cellar, if I wished, and have it whitewashed into the bargain. But he is right enough about the beds and windows and things. It is an airy and comfortable room, as any one need wish. And, of course, I would not be so silly as to make him uncomfortable just for a whim. I'm really getting quite fond of the big room. All but that horrid paper. Out of one window I can see the garden. Those mysterious deep-shaded arbors. The riotous old-fashioned flowers. And bushes and gnarly trees. Out of another I get a lovely view of the bay, and a little private wharf belonging to the estate. There is a beautiful shaded lane that runs down from the house. I always fancy I see people walking in these numerous paths and arbors, but John has cautioned me not to give way to fancy in the least. He says that with my imaginative power and habit of story-making, a nervous weakness like mine is sure to lead to all manner of excited fancies and that I ought to use my will and good sense to check the tendency. 
so I try. I think sometimes that if I were only well enough to write a little, it would relieve the press of ideas and rest me. But I find I get pretty tired when I try. It is so discouraging not to have any advice and companionship about my work. When I get really well, John says we will ask Cousin Henry and Julia down for a long visit, but he says he would as soon put fireworks in my pillowcase as to let me have those stimulating people about me now. I wish I could get well faster, but I must not think about that. This paper looks to me as if it knew what a vicious influence it had. There is a recurrent spot where the pattern lolls like a broken neck and two bulbous eyes stare at you upside down. I get positively angry with the impertinence of it and the everlastingness. Up and down and sideways they crawl. And those absurd unblinking eyes are everywhere. There is one place where two breaths didn't match, and the eyes go all up and down the line, one a little higher than the other. I never saw so much expression in an inanimate thing before, and we all know how much expression they have. I used to lie awake as a child and get more entertainment and terror out of blank walls and plain furniture than most children could find in a toy store. I remember what a kindly wink the knobs of our big old bureau used to have, and there was one chair that always seemed like a strong friend. I used to feel that if any of the other things looked too fierce, I could always hop into that chair and be safe. The furniture in this room is no worse than in Harmonious, however, for we had to bring it all from downstairs. I suppose when this was used as a playroom, they had to take the nursery things out, and no wonder. I never saw such ravages as the children have made here. The wallpaper, as I said before, is torn off in spots and it sticketh closer than a brother. He must have had perseverance as well as hatred. And then the floor is scratched and gouged and splintered. The plaster itself is dug out here and there, and this great heavy bed, which is all we found in the room, looks as if it had been through the wars. But I don't mind it a bit. Only the paper. There comes John's sister. Such a dear girl as she is and so careful of me. I must not let her find me writing. She is a perfect and enthusiastic housekeeper, and hopes for no better profession. I verily believe she thinks it is the writing which made me sick, but I can write when she is out, and see her a long way off from these windows. There is one that commands the road, a lovely shaded winding road, and one that just looks off over the country. A lovely country, too, full of great elms and velvet meadows. This wallpaper has a kind of sub-pattern in a different shade, a particularly irritating one, for you can only see it in certain lights, and not clearly then. But in the places where it isn't faded and where the sun is just so, I can see a strange, provoking, formless sort of figure that seems to skulk about behind that silly and conspicuous front design. There, sister on the stairs. Well, the Fourth of July is over. 
The people are gone and I am tired out. John thought it might do me good to see a little company, so we just had Mother and Nellie and the children down for a week. Of course, I didn't do a thing. Jenny sees to everything now. But it tired me all the same. John says if I don't pick up faster, he shall send me to Weir Mitchell in the fall, but I don't want to go there at all. I had a friend who was in his hands once, and she says he is just like John and my brother, only more so. Besides, it is such an undertaking to go so far. I don't feel as if it was worthwhile to turn my hand over for anything, and I'm getting dreadfully fretful and querulous. I cry at nothing, and cry most of the time. Of course I don't when John is here, or anybody else, but when I am alone. And I am alone a good deal just now. John is kept in town very often by serious cases, and Jenny is good and lets me alone when I want her to. So I walk a little in the garden or down that lovely lane, sit on the porch under the roses, and lie down up here a good deal. I'm getting really fond of the room, in spite of the wallpaper. Perhaps because of the wallpaper. It dwells on my mind so. I lie here on this great immovable bed. It is nailed down, I believe and follow that pattern about by the hour. It is as good as gymnastics, I assure you. I start, we'll say, at the bottom, down in the corner over there where it has not been touched, and I determine for the thousandth time that I will follow that pointless pattern to some sort of a conclusion. I know a little of the principle of design, and I know this thing was not arranged on any laws of radiation, or alternation, or repetition, or symmetry, or anything else that I ever heard of. It is repeated, of course, by the breaths, but not otherwise. Looked at in one way, each breath stands alone. The bloated curves and flourishes, a kind of debased Romanesque with delirium tremens, go waddling up and down in isolated columns of fatuity. But, on the other hand, they connect diagonally, and these sprawling outlines run off in great slanting waves of optic horror, like a lot of wallowing seaweeds in full chase. The whole thing goes horizontally, too, at least it seems so, and I exhaust myself in trying to distinguish the order of its going in that direction. They have used a horizontal breath for a freeze, and that adds wonderfully to the confusion. There is one end of the room where it is almost intact, and there, when the cross lights fade and the low sun shines directly upon it, I can almost fancy radiation after all. The interminable grotesques seem to form around a common center and rush off in headlong plunges of equal distraction. It makes me tired to follow it. I will take a nap, I guess. I don't know why I should write this. I don't want to. I don't feel able. And I know John would think it absurd, but I must say what I feel and think in some way. It is such a relief. But the effort is getting to be greater than the relief. 
Half the time now I am awfully lazy and lie down ever so much. John says I mustn't lose my strength and has made me take cod liver oil and lots of tonics and things to say nothing of ale and wine and rare meat. Dear John, he loves me very dearly and hates to have me sick. I tried to have a real, earnest, reasonable talk with him the other day and tell him how I wish he would let me go and make a visit to Cousin Henry and Julia. But he said I wasn't able to go, nor able to stand it after I got there. And I did not make out a very good case for myself, for I was crying before I had finished. It is getting to be a great effort for me to think straight. Just this nervous weakness, I suppose. And dear John gathered me up in his arms and just carried me upstairs and laid me on the bed and sat by me and read to me till I tired my head. He said I was his darling and his comfort and all he had and that I must take care of myself for his sake and keep well. He says no one but myself can help me out of it that I must use my will and self-control and not let any silly fancies run away with me. There's one comfort. The baby is well and happy and does not have to occupy this nursery with the horrid wallpaper. If we had not used it, that blessed child would have. What a fortunate escape. Why, I wouldn't have a child of mine, an impressionable little thing, live in such a room for worlds. I never thought of it before, but it is lucky that John kept me here after all. I can stand it so much easier than a baby, you see. Of course, I never mention it to them any more. I am too wise. But I keep watch of it all the same. There are things in that paper that nobody knows but me. Or ever will. Behind that outside pattern, the dim shapes get clearer every day. It is always the same shape, only very numerous. And it is like a woman stooping down and creeping about behind that pattern. I don't like it a bit. I wonder. I begin to think. I wish John would take me away from here. It is so hard to talk with John about my case, because he is so wise, and because he loves me so but I tried it last night. It was moonlight. The moon shines in all around just as the sun does. I hate to see it sometimes. It creeps so slowly and always comes in by one window or another. John was asleep and I hated to waken him. So I kept still and watched the moonlight on that undulating wallpaper till I felt creepy. The faint figure behind seemed to shake the pattern, just as if she wanted to get out. I got up softly and went to feel and see if the paper did move, and when I came back, John was awake. What is it, little girl? he said. Don't go walking about like that, you'll get cold. I thought it was a good time to talk, so I told him that I was really not gaining here, and that I wished he would take me away. Why, darling, said he, our lease will be up in three weeks and I can't see how to leave before. The repairs are not done at home and I cannot possibly leave town just now. Of course, if you were in any danger, I could and would. But you really are better, dear, whether you can see it or not. 
I am a doctor, dear, and I know. You are gaining flesh and color. Your appetite is better, and I feel really much easier about you. I don't weigh a bit more, said I, nor as much, and my appetite may be better in the evening when you are here, but it is worse in the morning when you are away. Bless her little heart, said he with a big hug. She shall be as sick as she pleases. But now let's improve the shining hours by going to sleep and talk about it in the morning. And you won't go away? I asked gloomily. Why, how can I, dear? It is only three weeks more, and then we will take a nice little trip of a few days while Jenny is getting the house ready. Really, dear, you are better. Better in body, perhaps, I began, and stopped short, for he sat up straight and looked at me with such a stern, reproachful look that I could not say another word. My darling, said he, I beg of you for my sake and for our child's sake, as well as for your own, that you will never for one instant let that idea enter your mind. There is nothing so dangerous, so fascinating to a temperament like yours. It is a false and foolish fancy. Can you not trust me as a physician when I tell you so? So, of course, I said no more on that score, and we went to sleep before long. He thought I was asleep first, but I wasn't, and lay there for hours trying to decide whether that front pattern and the back pattern really did move together or separately. On a pattern like this, by daylight, there is a lack of sequence, a defiance of law, that is a constant irritant to a normal mind. The color is hideous enough and unreliable enough and infuriating enough, but the pattern is torturing. You think you have mastered it, but just as you get well underway in following, it turns a back somersault and there you are. It slaps you in the face, knocks you down, and tramples upon you. It is like a bad dream. The outside pattern is a florid arabesque, reminding one of a fungus. If you can imagine a toadstool in joints, an interminable string of toadstools, budding and sprouting in endless convolutions, why, that is something like it. That is, sometimes. There is one marked peculiarity about this paper, a thing nobody seems to notice but myself, and that is that it changes as the light changes. When the sun shoots in through the east window, I always watch for that first long straight ray. It changes so quickly that I never can quite believe it. That is why I watch it always. By moonlight, the moon shines in all night when there is a moon, I wouldn't know it was the same paper. At night, in any kind of light. In twilight, candlelight, lamplight, and worst of all, by moonlight, it becomes bars. The outside pattern, I mean. And the woman behind it is as plain as can be. I didn't realize for a long time what the thing was that showed behind. That dim sub-pattern. But now I am quite sure it is a woman.
By daylight she is subdued, quiet. I fancy it is the pattern that keeps her so still. It is so puzzling. It keeps me quiet by the hour. I lie down ever so much now. John says it is good for me. And do sleep all I can. Indeed, he started the habit by making me lie down for an hour after each meal. It is a very bad habit, I am convinced. For you see, I don't sleep. And that cultivates deceit. For I don't tell them I'm awake. Oh, no. The fact is, I am getting a little afraid of John. He seems very queer sometimes. And even Jenny has an inexplicable look. It strikes me occasionally, just as a scientific hypothesis, that perhaps it is the paper. I have watched John when he did not know I was looking, and come into the room suddenly on the most innocent excuses, and I've caught him several times looking at the paper. And Jenny, too. I caught Jenny with her hand on it once. She didn't know I was in the room. And when I asked her in a quiet, a very quiet voice, with the most restrained manner possible, what she was doing with the paper, she turned around as if she had been caught stealing and looked quite angry, asked me why I should frighten her so. And then she said that the paper stained everything it touched, and that she had found yellow smooches in all my clothes and John's, and she wished we would be more careful. Did not that sound innocent? But I know she was studying that pattern, and I am determined that nobody shall find it out but myself. Life is very much more exciting now than it used to be. You see, I have something more to expect, to look forward to, to watch. I really do eat better and am more quiet than I was. John is so pleased to see me improve. He laughed a little the other day and said I seemed to be flourishing in spite of my wallpaper. I turned it off with a laugh. I had no intention of telling him it was because of the wallpaper. He would make fun of me. He might even want to take me away. I don't want to leave now until I have found it out. There is a week more, and I think that will be enough. I'm feeling so much better. I don't sleep much at night, for it is so interesting to watch developments, but I sleep a good deal in the daytime. In the daytime, it is tiresome and perplexing. There are always new shoots on the fungus, and new shades of yellow all over it. I cannot keep count of them, though I have tried conscientiously. It is the strangest yellow, that wallpaper. It makes me think of all the yellow things I ever saw. Not beautiful ones like buttercups, but old, foul, bad yellow things. But there is something else about that paper. The smell. I noticed it the moment we came into the room. But with so much air and sun, it was not bad. Now we have had a week of fog and rain. And whether the windows are open or not, the smell is here. It creeps all over the house. I find it hovering in the dining room, skulking in the parlor, hiding in the hall, 
lying in wait for me on the stairs. It gets into my hair. Even when I go to ride, if I turn my head suddenly and surprise it, there is that smell. Such a peculiar odor, too. I have spent hours in trying to analyze it, to find what it smelled like. It is not bad at first, and very gentle, but quite the subtlest, most enduring odor I ever met. In this damp weather, it is awful. I wake up in the night and find it hanging over me. It used to disturb me at first. I thought seriously of burning the house, to reach the smell. But now I am used to it. The only thing I can think of that it is like is the color of the paper. A yellow smell. There is a very funny mark on this wall, low down, near the mop board. A streak that runs round the room. It goes behind every piece of furniture except the bed. A long, straight, even smooch, as if it had been rubbed over and over. I wonder how it was done and who did it, and what they did it for. Round and round and round. Round and round and round. It makes me dizzy. I really have discovered something at last. Through watching so much at night, when it changes so, I have finally found out. The front pattern does move, and no wonder. The woman behind shakes it. Sometimes I think there are a great many women behind and sometimes only one, and she crawls around fast, and her crawling shakes it all over. Then in the very bright spot she keeps still, and in the very shady spots she just takes hold of the bars and shakes them hard, and she is all the time trying to climb through. But nobody could climb through that pattern. It strangles so. I think that is why she has so many heads. They get through, and then the pattern strangles them off and turns them upside down and makes their eyes white. If those heads were covered or taken off, it would not be half so bad. I think that woman gets out in the daytime, and I'll tell you why privately. I've seen her. I can see her out of every one of my windows. It is the same woman I know, for she is always creeping, and most women do not creep by daylight. I see her on that long road under the trees, creeping along, and when a carriage comes, she hides under the blackberry vines. I don't blame her a bit. It must be very humiliating to be caught creeping by daylight. I always lock the door when I creep by daylight. I can't do it at night, for I know John would suspect something at once. And John is so queer now that I don't want to irritate him. I wish he would take another room. Besides, I don't want anybody to get that woman out at night but myself. I often wonder if I could see her out of all the windows at once. But, turn as fast as I can, I can only see out of one at a time. And though I always see her, she may be able to creep faster than I can turn. I have watched her sometimes away off in the open country, creeping as fast as a cloud shadow in a high wind. If only that top pattern could be gotten off from the under one.
I mean to try it, little by little. I have found out another funny thing, but I shan't tell it this time. It does not do to trust people too much. There are only two more days to get this paper off, and I believe John is beginning to notice. I don't like the look in his eyes, and I heard him ask Jenny a lot of professional questions about me. She had a very good report to give. She said I slept a good deal in the daytime. John knows I don't sleep very well at night, for all I'm so quiet. He asked me all sorts of questions, too, and pretended to be very loving and kind. As if I couldn't see through him. Still, I don't wonder he acts so, sleeping under this paper for three months. It only interests me, but I feel sure John and Jenny are secretly affected by it. Hooray! This is the last day, but it is enough. John is to stay in town overnight, and won't be out until this evening. Jenny wanted to sleep with me, the sly thing. But I told her I should undoubtedly rest better for a night all alone. That was clever, but really I wasn't alone a bit. As soon as it was moonlight, and that poor thing began to crawl and shake the pattern, I got up and ran to help her. I pulled and she shook. I shook and she pulled. And before morning we had peeled off yards of that paper. A strip about as high as my head and half around the room. And then when the sun came and that awful pattern began to laugh at me, I declared I would finish it today. We go away tomorrow and they are moving all my furniture down again to leave things as they were before. Jenny looked at the wall in amazement, but I told her merrily that I did it out of pure spite at the vicious thing. She laughed and said she wouldn't mind doing it herself, but I must not get tired. How she betrayed herself that time. But I am here, and no person touches this paper but me, not alive. She tried to get me out of the room. It was too patent. But I said it was so quiet and empty and clean now that I believed I would lie down again and sleep all I could. And not to wake me even for dinner, I would call when I woke. So now she is gone, and the servants are gone, and the things are gone, and there is nothing left but that great bedstead nailed down with the canvas mattress we found on it. We shall sleep downstairs tonight and take the boat home tomorrow. I quite enjoy the room. Now it is bare again. How oh, those children did tear about here. This bedstead is fairly gnawed. But I must get to work. I have locked the door and thrown the key down into the front path. I don't want to go out and I don't want to have anybody come in, till John comes. I want to astonish him. I've got a rope up here that even Jenny did not find. If that woman does get out, and tries to get away, I can tie her. But I forgot I could not reach far without anything to stand on. This bed will not move. I tried to lift and push it until I was lame. And then I got so angry I bit off a little piece at one corner, but it hurt my teeth. Then I peeled off all the paper I could reach standing on the floor, 
It sticks horribly, and the pattern just enjoys it. All those strangled heads and bulbous eyes and waddling fungus growth just shriek with derision. I am getting angry enough to do something desperate. To jump out of the window would be admirable exercise. But the bars are too strong even to try. Besides, I wouldn't do it, of course not. I know well enough that a step like that is improper and might be misconstrued. I don't like to look out of the windows, even. There are so many of those creeping women, and they creep so fast. I wonder if they all come out of that wallpaper as I did. But I am securely fastened now by my well-hidden rope. You don't get me out in the road there. I suppose I shall have to get back behind the pattern when it comes night. And that is hard. It is so pleasant to be out in this great room and creep around as I please. I don't want to go outside. I won't, even if Jenny asks me to. For outside you have to creep on the ground, and everything is green instead of yellow. But here I can creep smoothly on the floor. And my shoulder just fits in that long smooch around the wall. So I cannot lose my way. Why, there's John at the door. It's no use, young man. You can't open it. How he does call and pound. Now he's crying for an axe. It would be a shame to break down that beautiful door. John, dear, said I in the gentlest voice. The key is down by the front steps, under a plantain leaf. That silenced him for a few moments. Then he said, very quietly indeed, Open the door, my darling. I can't, said I. The key is down by the front door, under a plantain leaf. And then I said it again several times, very gently and slowly and said it so often that he had to go and see. And he got it, of course, and came in. He stopped short by the door. What is the matter? he cried. For God's sake, what are you doing? I kept on creeping just the same. But I looked at him over my shoulder. I've got out at last, said I, in spite of you and Jane and I've pulled off most of the paper, so you can't put me back. Now why should that man have fainted? But he did, and right across my path by the wall, so that I had to creep over him every time. The Yellow Wallpaper is a piece that explores several different stories, has its feet in several places. Charlotte Perkins Gilman is remembered, if remembered at all, principally for this story. That is when she is remembered by such lovers of the strange as we are. To many, however, Ms. Gilman is remembered 
as a feminist spokesperson, philosopher, social reformer, a woman who wrote some fiction to illustrate her points as she spoke on behalf of women and the way in which women should be, must be, perceived. She was born in Hartford, Connecticut, on July 3, 1860. She published her best-known story, this one, in 1892. One of her greatest works of nonfiction, Women and Economics, was published in 1898. Along with writing books, she established a magazine, The Forerunner, published from 1909 to 1916. Gilman committed suicide on August 17th, 1935, in Pasadena, California. You can certainly read tonight's story as a feminist tract, a tale of a woman suffering terminal postpartum depression, bullied by a husband who knows what's best for her, and by a society that tells her she has nothing but the fruits of her womb to contribute to the world. But of course, there is that other story that lies inside, the one some have called the most perfect gothic horror tale of its era, in its portrayal of possible madness and powerlessness. One critic says of the story, Quite apart from its origins, the yellow wallpaper is one of the finest and strongest tales of horror ever written. It may be a ghost story. Worse yet, it may not be. In his essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, H.P. Lovecraft wrote that the yellow wallpaper rises to a classic level in subtly delineating the madness which crawls over a woman dwelling in the hideously papered room where a madwoman was once confined. Helen Lefkowitz Horowitz, in her book Wild Unrest, Charlotte Perkins Gilman and the Making of the Yellow Wallpaper, concludes that the story was a cri de coeur against Gilman's first husband, artist Charles Walter Stetson, and the traditional marriage he had demanded. Anglican Archbishop Peter Carnley used the story as a reference and a metaphor for the situation of women in the church in his sermon at the ordination of the first women priests in Australia on 7 March 1992 at St. George's Cathedral, Perth. Well, as you can see, there's a lot of work being done by this piece. I like it very much. And I thank you, Ms. Cecilia, for alerting me to it. The Yellow Wallpaper was read for us tonight by a now-old friend here in the Nook, Ms. Nicole Doolin. Nicole is a writer and a voice actor. Her fiction, poetry, and plays have been published and performed, and her voice has sounded in various media. Nicole narrates classic literature in her podcast, Audio Literature Odyssey, and also narrates contemporary stories for Crime City Central and the No Sleep podcast, as well as mixing it up for us here at Tales to Terrify. To learn more about Nicole, visit her website at nicoledoolin.com. I'll have that on the Tales to Terrify homepage. Before you leave tonight, I had a note earlier this week from Diane severson Mori. Diane is another child of the starship, the host-gatherer of Poetry Planet on the starship sofa, and a regular contributor to Amazing Stories magazine. Diane tells me she has an exciting project in the works. 
She and Lester Smith at Popcorn Press are collaborating to create an audiobook version of this year's Popcorn Press Halloween collection, Cthulhu Haiku 2, and more Mythos Madness. Les has put out one of these collections for the past five years. Last year was Cthulhu Haiku and Other Mythos Madness, and I suppose that should be that title number one. And that was the first time he used Kickstarter to help crowdfund the project. Diane reviewed that book for Amazing Stories, for which she produced an audio recording of several poems from the text. This year, Diane suggested that Les give away an audiobook version of Cthulhu Haiku 2 to Kickstarter contributors and offer to produce it. The audiobook was to be used as a stretch goal if sufficient funding came forth, at least 100 contributors. Les has now updated the Kickstarter site to include the offer, and at the moment there are over 60 backers. That was this past Tuesday. And even at the lowest pledge level, just $2, a contributor will get the audiobook. So, I hope you'll go check out the project, get the details, and pledge if it tickles your fancy. Again, I'll put the link on the Tales to Terrify homepage and on our Facebook page. And by the way, you might even submit some of your poetry. Be sure to tell your friends about the project. It supports both Mythos Verse and short, short fiction. And that will be that for the evening. Don't forget your wraps, your gloves, and whatevers. There's wind and a damp chill with it tonight. There's darkness. The rattling you hear will be nothing but dry branches tap, tap, tapping on children's bedroom windows. Most of the houses you pass on your way home will be real, part of this time and place. Most. But you'll be home soon, and soon you'll be in your bed, snuggled. As you turn off the light, take one last quick look at the walls, at the patterns on your walls, as the darkness snatches you in its embrace, and from there, well... Have pleasant dreams, hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to pod... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Casting the finest genre fiction. 
You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.